my whole life, probably three, four, five times a day, and I mean, rarely do I miss this. I do something, it's called stop time. And it's really about stopping time to reset. And the acronym for stop time is settle down, take a breath, own it, poof. (laughs) And I do that throughout the day to reset. (laughs) I have the honor and privilege of sitting down with the Nancy Gale on a beautiful Friday afternoon Nancy and I were fortunate enough to get together recently on a trip I had out to LA and sat down. And I knew this ahead of time, but I don't think I've ever been more sure after a conversation of like, I've got to get this person on the podcast. I feel like we've known each other for many, many lifetimes, even though it's more recently in this one. There's just a, there's a special connection there. Uh, There's a mutual admiration. There's a curiosity. And normally I have an amazing intro to give like a a corporate biography or past experiences or something. But Nancy has made this one hard on me because I don't even really know where to start. She's like a fine wine. You've got to kind of open it and let it breathe and just experience everything that she is. It's cliche, but I would say like an onion, there's like so many layers. You just, you don't really know where to start and each one becomes more and more interesting. But this is a woman that in a very short amount of time has had experiences that have then created an amazing amount of reflection that most people don't ever achieve. And so whether it's her philanthropic efforts with ambition, which we'll talk about, her unbelievable creativity around her handbag company and all the wonderful things that it's doing, her network, and just the amazing amount of people that she knows and allows into her life, or, and we'll spend a bunch of time talking about this, her unwavering desire to find truth and justice makes me humbled and honored to welcome Nancy Gale to the climb. Welcome, Nancy. Uh, Thank you so, so much. (laughs) Wow. I don't even know what to say to that. Well, you don't have to say anything. We're going to jump right in. So, I tend to start these out slow and build. With you, we're going to do exactly the opposite. I want to dive in because I just find it insane that several years ago through this amazing organization now called Alder, I had the privilege of meeting you. We've developed a relationship. And then over time, as we talked and gained trust and told stories, we find out that We have a really weird connection with Southfield, Michigan. So if you're willing, take us back to Southfield, Michigan, and why that city is important in your life. And if you're okay with it, I want to start telling that story. Absolutely. I think it's an important story to tell. So when I was 
just about seven, we moved from California to Southfield, Michigan. And, you know, I, I was very fortunate. I had a great life there. I think wherever one goes at seven, if you have great connected parents, life is great. People often say to me, did you like Southfield? And was that strange moving there from California? And of course, I loved California even at seven. But I, we moved there uh, for a job for my dad and life was fantastic. And I left years and years ago. But about a little over 10 years ago, my mom was brutally murdered in the home where I grew up. Words or a word, murder, one never expects to use in a sentence uh, when they're talking about themselves. She was actually um, 81 years old. My father had passed about 10 years earlier. And one morning I got a phone call that someone had seen a report on the news and the description sounded like my mom. And before you know it, I am at my childhood home with caution and police tape around it. So, look, unfortunately, the word murder, especially I feel like every time we turn on the news, there's another mass shooting, which I just I can't get my arms around. Why? But your mom, I mean, so you get there, you see this, like, talk about the wave of emotion, how you start processing. Obviously, you need to be calm in the eye of the storm. Like, walk us through those first moments as you realize, like, I'm at ground zero, I'm in the thick of this. Holy shit, this is my mom, this is happening. Yeah, so it's so surreal. And even just the flight there, you, I, I don't, I think our brains, right, they compensate for being, for, for something that's so big and hard to handle. So I just kind of went into production mode and I really did everything I could to focus in that moment on the fact that I lost my mom because that was the piece that will never go away, right? No, no one wants to lose their mom. And then you realize, huh, then hopefully we do lose a parent, right? And a parent doesn't lose, uh, a parent doesn't lose their kid. But losing a parent this way, there were just a million thoughts and emotions. And I think sort of unconsciously, I understood that this was going to go on for an inordinate amount of time. I lost my dad the way one wants to lose their parent. He got sick one day and he passed the next. He had an active, like exciting life. And then one day he died and he was older and it was just exactly the way I know he would have wanted it to be. And I, something, you know, in me with this, even though I didn't want to really wrap my head around it, knew that this was going to be very different. And all of a sudden, it's not just my mom passing. We're in the house with, again, with police tape talking to police. We're down at the station. We're doing press conferences. It was really hard to put all those pieces together. And then, of course, there's the whole why and who and what happened, which then took me down this, you know, seven, eight year path. So I'll sort of go back to 
the details of what ultimately happened. So we go through this. We get home. I get back home. And at this point, it's a headline case for about a year. And nobody knew what happened. And I'd get, I talked to the police like day after day and they had a suspect, but no, nobody talked about that, but you just kept seeing it on the news. And then one day I happened to be talking to one of the detectives because little by little, we started hearing less and less and less. And what I discovered is when you hear less and less about a case like this, the public assumes it's been solved. And that's why they're not hearing about it anymore. And at this point, the case just went cold. And that was really hard to pallet because this was a really brutal murder. My mom, after whatever happened, and we didn't know at the time, she was then put in the backseat of her car, driven about 45 minutes away to an area called Highland Park. And then this person with her in the backseat lit the car on fire. So it just went from bad to horrible to horrific. And then nobody had any answers. And then I didn't hear from the police anymore. And I'd call and call and call. And one day, about four or five years later, I was with a gentleman named Andrew Rodney as we were getting onboarded to Alder. And we start chatting and I discover he has a business in Southfield, Michigan. And so I said, do you know the name Helen Gale? And he said, oh, of course I do. That's the woman that was murdered in in her car. I said, yes, that was my mother. And of course, we just had this immediate bond. And the first thing he said was, must have felt so great when they caught the guy. And I said, they haven't. It's a cold case. So... Andrew and I became very fast friends, and he still lived in Michigan. He was out here for his onboarding. And I told him that my best friend had written a letter just talking about the travesty of cases like this that just kind of go into the ether and how how does one live that way. So he called me a couple days later and he said, can you send me that letter? And uh, I sent it to him. And then I received another call from him a few days after that. And he said, okay, I sent it to a guy I know. His name is M.L. Elric. He's a news guy and really popular. And he said, don't share this with the news. Because at this point, I was getting so frustrated. We thought maybe we, if we get some press around it, that'll help. So he said, he told me, to reach out to a guy named Scott Lewis, who's an investigative journalist. And he's the real deal. He's not some snaky private investigator. He was on the news for a long time. And uh, he works also now with the Innocence Project. I think you should connect connect with Scott. So Andrew calls me to say, I hope I didn't overstep, but I hired Scott Lewis for you. And that sense of community was so incredible for me. I mean, I don't know where or how I was so lucky to be involved in this group that would sort of have my back and take care of me this way. So 
I talked to Scott Lewis and Scott said, look, I'm not going to do anything fancy. I'm just going to bug the shit out of the PD. They know my name. I was in the news. They, they're not going to want to hear from me or from any of us knowing now that this is in my, uh, in my space. So that's what he did. He just kept calling and calling and calling. And before you know it, I get a call saying the case is live. And so what had happened is it had been marked somehow through, I mean, the story, the details are all still a little bit fuzzy, but the, the theory was a medical examiner had said, we think she was afraid and died of a heart attack. So then it became a case that was no longer marked as a murder. We found that really, really odd because no, we never heard anything about the medical examination. So they got, brought in a new medical examiner. He went through the case and through these tissue slides and determined by about the third slide, there was no doubt, it was absolutely unquestionable, she was asphyxiated, she was strangled. And so... That immediately put it back now as a murder case. So it came out a cold case. And uh, with the work of these amazing detectives, it came to life again. And it turned out it was her next door neighbor. And he had uh, years ago. Had you met him? I had not met him. It was a newer neighbor. And it turns out he had had a drug problem, a crack cocaine problem years ago, cleaned up his life, married, job, kids, bought a home. Life had, you know, was working out for him. Lost the job, foreclosed her on the home. Wife left, lost, you know, a lot of contact with his kids and um, went back into the crack cocaine. And one night just lost it and they think he was going over to my mom's to probably get some money and my mom would have opened the door for him uh, unquestionably so they said the theory is something just went wrong and he just went crazy and then he uh, in from the markings there was some type of conflict and he took my mom's life and then out of fear, put her in the back of the car, did call his Narcotics Anonymous sponsor and said, I did something really bad last night. How long did it take for that for that piece? Because that's a key piece, right? I mean, obviously, there's an admission of guilt there. How, how long did it take for that piece to, to surface where it needed to be? Well, that's the craziest thing. That came out immediately. And then his Narcotics Anonymous sponsor said, because they picked him up, they they held him, and she had agreed to wear a wire. And the day before they were meeting, he decided he didn't want to meet with her. And then somehow they let him go. And, you know, it's so interesting because I was talking to one of the detectives and he said, you know, when we go, when we're involved in cases like this, the public is so programmed to think that in 44 minutes, because of all the TV shows, <laughs> that crimes get solved this quickly and that evidence gets turned in this quickly. But 
there are so many reasons political reasons how the police force uh, how the inner the inside really works that so many of these cases go cold and there's this i think a misnomer so they talked about they talk about cold case detectives and i think that gives us the idea that there are these are detectives just going through cold cases and what we just to see if there's something that can be pulled what we discovered is if people in the background work hard enough to get a case pulled they are assigned to a cold case detective so the work comes from the other the other end and I think, you know, and for me, people kept saying, yeah, you want to get closure. And I said, I don't, this isn't about closure. Closure is like in the heart. This is about justice and keeping someone like this off the streets, yet at the same time, hoping that you can put that person into a place that they can't do this again, but can find redemption because that's what our, that's what life is supposed to be. And so, um, you know, he he had moved to Ohio at this point, lived there for, I mean, we were at almost the seven, eight year mark. And then I got the call that they they finally picked him up. And then we spent lots, a lot of Mondays in court, or sorry, a lot of Tuesdays in court. And then just uh, six, eight months prior to COVID, they put him away. And the next thing I know, I'm reading an impact statement in the courtroom. And his family was there and our family was there. And I got to look him in the eye. I, I actually wrote this impact statement, part uh, one page to my uh, family and, and my mom's friends, one page to him and one page to his family. And that was really cathartic. And then he was put away and my my path changed give us some insight like when you sat okay so you've had you know beginning to end you're going on decade right and and just the the roller coaster and the emotions and the lack of closure and you know if i'm putting myself in your shoes the just complete disarray of the process, right? I mean, it's it's beautiful that we live in the United States and you are innocent until proven guilty. Like, I think that fundamentally is the right way to start the process. But then when it fails and clearly details were coming out along the way, clearly this isn't the only time this has ever happened. It happens all the time but you had the ability through your network and your willingness to be vulnerable and share your story, find people that could be whatever you want to call it, the squeaky wheel, the engine that you didn't have enough gas to run anymore, whatever you wanted to call that, to get this thing going again. And now you've caught them and you're going to write three pages. One to your family, one to him, and one to his family. Where do you start coming up with the words? To walk me through that mental process, because I'm sure some of it was healing. Some of it was probably terrible. How, how do you come up with those words? You know, I just, for me, I keep thinking about my mom and 
what she would want in this world, what would make her proud, what would make her know that I'm continuing to live my life. Because even while I was doing that, it was really important that I lived the other parts of my life. In fact, one thing I thought about was someone said to me, um, or I was telling someone, talking about my mom, and they said, it's so funny because this story is so horrible, but you can't stop smiling. I said, because I'm talking about my mom. I always smile when I talk about my mom. I mean, of course, other than when I was a teenager, (laughs) she was telling me what to do. Um, But I kept sort of, I kept looking at this as like, what does this mean in the, in the grand scheme? So it's awful to lose a parent that way. There's nothing, I, I think, more, there's no more awful way to lose a parent. But I said to the, in this conversation, I said, you know, it's so interesting because people always say, I don't know how you put on that happy face. And my response to that is always the same. Because no matter what I'm going through, I'm happy Nancy. That's who I am. I mean, I, my friends have dubbed me Pollyanna Disneyland. <laughs> but I can be both at once. I can be a person who's going and gone through this horrible tragedy. But that doesn't make me not happy Nancy. And I feel like my responsibility to myself and my life and the people who love me is to be that person. But it doesn't mean I'm not feeling and in pain. And so I, that was sort of how I framed everything. And I've had so many conversations with people about redemption and the lack of forgiveness we have in society. I mean, it's, so we raise our kids to, to own their mistakes and to do better and to say please and to say thank you and to say I'm sorry. But when we do that, now all the, the response we get is, you're just saying you're sorry because you want, for your own sake, you don't, you don't really care that you hurt somebody. So I think, well, why, why are we even raising our kids that way anymore if no one's going to give, uh, if that's all going to be discounted? And what it taught me really was forgiveness and and an understanding i've always been fascinated when you hear families that have had a member more murdered or in these horrible situations and you'll hit off sometimes on the news right you see people say we forgave that person and i've never understood exactly what that meant and i finally do at least for me it doesn't mean and i always say like Hey, dude, when you're out of prison, let's go out for cocktails. But what I learned is I have to forgive the situation and the human frailty. And this person was in their worst space. And I'm sure at some point in his life, he's not a serial killer. I'm sure at some point in his life said, can you imagine that anyone would ever murder somebody? His life plummeted. And there is no excuse for this. But I think we are so unaware of what people are going through and we're in a bit of denial as to what can really provoke us and how far someone would go. So I realized I have to forgive the situation and the weakness to move on. I don't have to specifically forgive him for the act, but how do I move on if I can't 
forgive the situation. And, and I don't know if, if that makes any sense, but it does for me. <laughs> no, it, it absolutely does. I just, most people I don't know have the ability to go that inward and process and take the time and, and, and really like focus on the ability to forgive. I mean, that, that's a very intentional process because this is arguably the worst possible scenario you could think of to happen to anybody. It happened to you. It happened to your mother. It happened to your family. It lasted way too long. And then at the end of it, it just says so much about you, Nancy, that your desire was, I have to do work now to find forgiveness. Where the easy button is to say, fuck that son of a bitch. I'm never forgiving him. Like, we're not, you know, I'm mad. I'm, I'm upset. I'm ruined. I can't do this anymore. And now look at you. You're this incredibly well-rounded, super successful entrepreneur giving back to her community so balanced so in the moment so peaceful like you can't most people can't do that so i mean kudos to you and and i think the world needs to learn from you that forgiveness is such a powerful force like we need to forgive more and figure out how to process that and and move on to ultimately right fulfill our lives and continue to to expand and and nurture and and move on so i i don't know i don't know if i could have done it i just don't know well i found it's so funny because i've been on this quest right to remove all the bullshit from my life and this has also taught me most things really don't matter the stuff everybody's freaking out about it doesn't matter it, uh, there, there are big things, and then a lot of the other shit is just uh, irrelevant in our lives. In fact, <laughs> I, I think I shared this with you when we had lunch, but my, my Michael, my fiance, I still love saying that, he and I were joking one day that, you know, there's this idea, they say, whoever they are, that when you are fighting about something trivial, that it always goes much deeper than that, that it's never about the topic, it's about something much bigger. And we have happily discovered that is not the case for us. Sometimes we're fighting about the fact that he thinks this shirt is gray, and I know that it's blue and that he's colorblind. <laughs> so um, I love life is so much easier when I, when we realize, right. I love the phrase. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And when we can leave the little things alone and use our energy for the bigger things. And, you know, I think too, I had a motivation that I'm so fortunate to have, which is working with our students. And so I have to remain resilient and, I have to think about what I want to bring to the, the the kids that we're working with. And I also realize in, so I definitely don't believe that everything happens for a reason. In fact, I always say to people, have a parent murdered and then see if you still believe that. <laughs> but I do believe from every situation, we can take something 
we can kick that ball down the road in a positive way. And so my mom's story has become so instrumental in my connection with our students because they look at me and they they read about me and then they I come into the classroom and they think, oh, look at that, the happy blonde handbag designer. And then I tell them my story and uh, some of the experiences I've had even prior to my mom. And you watch their faces change in an instant. And so I think, wow, that's something like, my mom was my biggest fan. She even left in a way <laughs> that helped me go to a different level with my students. And then a challenge. That's a beautiful transition. Although I, I think if the listeners are like me, they're a little on edge, like, okay, so we caught him. We had the day in court, like bring us back to today. What, what is the, the state of the case where he is? Where does it go from here? And, and how are you doing with all of that? So he is in prison and likely will die there. In fact, even when we were going through the trial, there were some days that we had to, we were sent home from Michigan because he had a blood disease and he was, was being hospitalized. He's in very, very poor health. He has another five years to his sentence. He was given three sentences. Unfortunately, they were not consec consecutive. So we're a little you know, skeptical on what will happen. I have, I'm going to actually, and it always takes me a little bit of time. I'm going to do a check-in in a couple of weeks to just see where everything is, but he, there's no early release for him. But by the time he, if he does get out, he'll be in his seventies and a very poor health. For me, I just, the only thing I can do that I know how to control is I focus on my mom. I mean, we did our work. I had this incredible community behind me. I had, every time we had to go back to Michigan, my fiance was sitting in that next to me on the airplane. I had people rally around me. I mean, Andrew, like kicking this, this off and Rosie writing the initial story that got it going. I just, I focus on that because I don't want to muddy my mom's memory anymore with him. So my memories now, and I'm committed to that, are about her. And I'm just so thankful for this team. I hate that it had to go as long as it did. But I hope by sharing this, people understand that the daily picking away at this, that's what got us through it. Because if I didn't share the story, it wouldn't have gotten to the next, you know, it's like telephone operator, right? And so uh, I, all I can do is be so grateful that we got to a place that he was finally picked up and put away. But, but walk me through the sentencing piece, right? Because whether you've had an interest in the law or hopefully not, but you've been through personally a situation like this, or you went to law school, or you want to have a, a firm understanding of a conviction. Like if he was convicted of murder, why are we talking about his release? Because we ended up with a plea deal. And so, because there was a point that to keep carrying on, I couldn't live with that anymore. And so, and the recommendations also from the 
prosecutor and the medical society, they all said, we can keep going or we can do a plea. Um, you have to make the decision how, how much more you want to do with this. And we had already put so much in. We knew he was going to go away. I was satisfied with at least 15 years. Would I have wanted something different in an ideal world? Of course, I think. But what I did know is it was time to close that chapter and to just be able to revere my mom's life without it being constantly in the space of 10 years of your mom was murdered versus celebrating your mom's life uh, was enough. Because I remember when my dad died, there's the grieving. It hurts. You miss them. But you move on. You learn to live without them as much as you wish they were there every single day. And I think that's what I realized with my mom is it had been almost a decade and I hadn't gotten to do that. So I, I weighing all the pieces, that one made the most sense. So you, you mentioned, you mentioned your students and I want to transition into that, but I, I want to ask one more question around this, if you're open to it, which is, this has been well-documented. You've told this story before. Obviously, it got press at the beginning, and a lot of great people revived it to get it to where it ultimately is today. Throughout that whole process, is there anything that you can share today on this podcast, thinking about crossroads and defining moments that nobody knows? I'm putting you on the spot, but something in this process in this horrific experience that nobody knows that you can share? Yes. I still have not cried. I've felt, I've been emotional. It's funny, I was just talking about this two days ago. I, and I mean, I've, I've shed tears, but I haven't taken that breath and just poured it out. And um, that's something, you know, and I think I think about this because I don't know if I have to do that, but everyone says, you know, it's okay to hurt. And I've, oh my gosh, it's hurt so much. And I feel like there's this sort of, I don't know if it's a, like a finality or something. I feel like there's almost this pressure, like you have to cry. I don't know if that's true. And it's something I actually struggled with because not crying doesn't mean, mean something doesn't hurt, but it is something that I've, I've looked at and thought, gosh, am I, have I done all of that step? So that's actually something that I've, I've, I've taken on recently. It's funny that you're asking me this because I realized the other day, nobody knows that nobody except maybe one or two people in my life. So um, I don't know if that's necessary. I'm trying to figure that out. But I do know I have felt. And I, I think what it's making me wonder is, is that a myth that you have to cry? Because, or is it that you just have to feel? Or is it that this work and this journey is not quite done yet? And at some point, the universe... We'll tell you when it is, and then that's your moment to 
to have that release. I don't know. That's interesting. We'll we'll circle back on that. That's that's good. So, your students and ambition and the wonderful work that you're doing with with youth in your area. Tell us about the foundation, the mission, the drive, the purpose. How those interested can get engaged. Just talk to us about it in in its totality. So. It really goes back to my handbag brand, to JAMA. And, you know, in the early, so my brand is 23 years old. And in the, the early 2000s, you know, there was a the whole pitch on cause marketing. And it always felt to me like, okay, you have a company, find a cause, any cause, act like you care, we'll market that and your business will do better. And it just didn't sit well with me. And as my brand grew and we became really high-end luxury, it made me think a lot about the dinner tables, you know, where we all sit. And I grew up with like pretty damn good dinner table. And I realized what happens if you didn't grow up at my dinner table? What happens if you like my, my clients now, they are raising their kids at dinner tables that offer so much. And I thought, gosh, what is the real difference between the haves and the have-nots? So it's easy to say dollars, but it's really access and exposure. So I thought I want to share my dinner table with kids that don't have what I do. And I want to connect that with my brand because something interesting that I realized when, in fact, when I was at one point looking for funding for JAMA, People kept saying to me, well, don't tell them about the nonprofit work you want to do. They don't want to hear that. Investors only want to hear that every bit's going to be focused on your your brand and and sales. And I thought, well, I need something to hold my feet to the fire. Because one thing I know is when shit hits the fan, what's the first thing to go is our charity work. It's unless that is your whole lifeblood you're running a business and things are going awry or you have kids and things are going awry. That's one of the first things to go. So I want to marry my cause and commerce so intrinsically that one can't function without the other, because then I've really, I, I've, I've got to put my money where my mouth is. If JAMA fails, ambition will fail and vice versa. And I can't let that happen. So the way I integrated it, I mean, the common way, right, is sell a bag, you donate to a nonprofit. But I don't, I don't work that way. I decided I want to do something that leaves no time in my life for anything but these two things. And so um, I thought, how do I share my dinner table? And how do I integrate that with JAMA? That, that to me looked like mentorship because I grew up, in a, at a table where if I say, you know, it might be interesting to be a lawyer or a teacher or a doctor, within days, we'd be talking to someone that was a lawyer, teacher, or doctor because we had access and I had exposure. So, you know, now I was faced with everybody telling me how I don't understand the school system and this concept I have, which was to bring groups of people on a consistent basis every single week to work with these kids, to make them comfortable, to make them understand they can sit at any table that they, they'd like to sit. 
and I'm going to find a way to get into the schools every week. So I, I listened to you know, person after person tell me this is impossible. And I just kept going forward and I found a school and I came up with this system. And in, uh, on February 22nd, 2010, we had our first classroom visit. And from there on, we have been in class every Wednesday for 13 years with the students from September to June. Until this year, we are now moving into club programming, which is really exciting because uh, the schools, the schools for what we do are limiting. We can give a lot more to a lot of kids in the club programming and bring school kids in. But the bottom line is we're trying to, again, to show these kids that they can do anything and have anything if they're willing to do the work and that there is nobody that is above them. And they can sit at any table that that they'd like. So everybody who works for JAMA now volunteers for ambition in some capacity. So that's the real connection. The success of JAMA allows me the bandwidth to run ambition. And does that sometimes, does our affiliate, our, our work with ambition sometimes help us with JAMA? Of course. But that's fine with me because then the more successful JAMA is, the more we can do with ambition. Well, you you connected them in a way that most entrepreneurs don't know necessarily how to do. And, you know, back to your comment about, you know, investors looking at something like this, like they, you know, they're looking for, if I invest this, what is the return of my money and then the return on my money? So I love the way you sort of reverse engineered this to make them one and the same. One can't exist without the other. That's that's truly incredible. How so for those interested in getting into nonprofit work, talk about the process because school systems, like any governmental <laughs> entity, are it's just a it's a maze that is impossible to navigate. Like, how do you get a program like this into a school? So I started talking to everybody and I kept having to remember it's not 1980 anymore. The red tape is different. I'm just going to start talking to people at schools, talking to teachers. So I, uh, I found a group that had an entre- sort of an entrepreneurial challenge comp- and called Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. And I met someone there and uh, she was actually referred to me. I was doing a, a speaking engagement and someone came up to me and said, I love the concept. You should meet these people. It's called their acronym is NIFTY. So I meet this gal named Betsy and another gal named Estelle at, at NIFTY. And I said, I have an idea for a program. It's pretty aligned with yours. And they were a national. And they said, okay, I'll tell you what. You volunteer for us and we'll see what you're made of. And then we'll consider implementing your program. So I like just a total, you know, fluke. I get two kids that, and they both win the national competition. So I look like the mentor of the year, but really I just had these two incredible students. So after that, I've now become like, you know, Nifty's golden child. So I went on January 13th, 
2010, I said, okay, I, I've proven myself. It's time for my program. And they said, all right, we'll take you to, uh, we'll introduce you to a dozen schools and we'll see. You'll, you'll meet the teachers. You'll talk to them. You'll see if anybody's interested in this concept of yours. So I go to all the schools and in this one particular meeting and every, everyone's like lovely and interested, but this one meeting with a gal named Brandy, actually Cobb at the time and a, she loves handbags, so that doesn't hurt. But I give her the concept and I tell her my frustration that these, you know, uh, kids just, they, they need to be attended to. They need people to show them their value, to help them understand their value. So <laughs> at, at the end of the meeting, she looks at me and I have a gal that works with me for JAMA uh, with me. And she said, I think it sounds great. Can you start February 22nd? I said, absolutely. And as I'm walking out, she said, so just email me the curriculum. So we walk out, we shut the door, and I look at my uh, assistant, and I said, oh, fuck, I don't have a curriculum. It's all in my head. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, she said, look, Nancy, I don't like to tell anyone this because she was there doing marketing and learning marketing. She said, you don't know this. But I'm actually a teacher. I have my master's in teaching and I'm leaving teaching and I want to get into marketing, but I'm happy if I'm not overstepping to write a curriculum for you. I said, well, if I'm not overstepping, can you have it next Friday? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then she did let me know too. She said, they're probably not even going to read it. They just need to have it on file. So we send in this curriculum and February 22nd, I showed up in class with a gal doing an internship with me, a young gal at the time named Jackie, who was just like a godsend. And we just went in and started talking to the kids and I brought camera uh, filmmakers. And initially the idea was they'll understand, we'll teach them how my handbag brand is run. And at the same time, we'll bring in mentors that they, they start to understand that so many people of success were in a position, the same position they were. And so one of the ideas I had was everything we'll do will be about marketing because that's the one thing I know that every kid will benefit from, even if it's just their presentation skills and, and interviews. So we decided we'll turn everything we do into a marketing project. So the kids, we start talking about Richard Branson one day. I said, you want to meet Richard Branson? And everyone, the kids got very excited as if I'd introduce him, them to him. And I said, let's do a video. Let's research him, learn everything we can about him, put a video together, not to ask him to come to class, but to make him feel that he's missing out if he doesn't meet the ambition kids. So they put together a video. I send it to someone I had just met at Virgin who was lovely enough to, uh, forward it. As it happens, he was in LA when he got it. And they called me the next day and said, Richard wants to meet you and the kids. Where, where's the school? I said, I would rather bring them to the sunset marquee because that again is an air, something they don't think that they are worthy of is being in places like that. So within hours, we're sitting with him with a group of our kids. And we hung out for about an hour. We got to film it. And that became our, our formula. Anything you want, we put a video together. 
And uh, we've had much success with those. And the, the formula of the program has changed. Uh, definitely for the better. Like, I, I mean, obviously we figured out who we were after about a decade and it's been my heartbeat ever since. And it's also kind of going back to my mom, a great place that I get to talk about her. And the magic of this program has been, I walk into the classroom every week and there are 10 to 15 mentors and the mentors have to come every month, but most of them come every week. And when you see how much they care to, to, to be there and what it does for the kids to see this consistency, that's, that's when you realize you're, you're, uh, you're part of something that's so much bigger than you. And uh, now we have crazy success stories with a lot of the students. What's been really uh, crazy is that a lot of my JAMA clients now are mentoring or donating to Ambition. So it's all full circle. Yeah. So that that's a good segue. I, I'm always interested because, you know, and I saw this in multiple generations inside my family of, of just this, this need and this purpose to get involved and give back. So back to your awesome analogy, you know, around the dinner table, like that thought process was ingrained in me that it's important to figure out how to give back. And, you know, in the United States of America and globally too, for that matter, we are blessed with a lot of nonprofit minded people, organizations that get behind initiatives. It's, it's an insanely important fabric that we all, you know, can, can benefit from and get involved in. At the same time, there's a lot of them. So utilizing this podcast as a medium to get the word out about ambition like what are the what are the key differentiators what's the secret sauce that makes this one different so i would say um firstly it's funny one of the things that we always say is we're so, we're trying to delete the phrase give back and change it to just fucking give because we don't like the idea of this. <laughs> like mm -hmm. if I give and then you give and then it's just like, just give. And I think what's amazing about ambition is we're very, there's a lot of flow. In fact, when I started, people would say to me in the classroom, sometimes we go way off the, the agenda and a lot of our mentors were very, very left brain and they'd say, we need a formula, we need a tight curriculum, um, we need to be informed before we come what we're going to do. And I am the, op for me, the program runs the absolute antithesis of that because I want the students to see the mentors in just their best form. I also want something that the mentors, because they're very busy, you know, they have kids, they have businesses. I don't want them to have any, any homework. You just show up and you are yourself. I think what makes ambition, at least in the educational arena, different is one thing I have discovered is if you do not know the kids, you cannot teach the kids. So sometimes you come in and all, and we sit in small groups with a few mentors and a few students, and all we do is talk. And so 
within that, what's ended up happening is the mentors have developed relationships with other mentors and people are doing business together. And I think what makes us different is we're not PC about all of this. So people oftentimes they'll say, uh, when I talk about ambition and I'll say, and it's amazing to see the relationships the mentors have uh, formed and the business they're doing together. And people say, well, that, that's that's fine, but it's all about the kids. I'm like, well, of course it's about the kids. We're in class every freaking morning, once a week, uh, every Wednesday morning from September to June. We know it's about the kids, but we're not afraid to say it's also just about this big overarching community. And so we go in there really honestly. And also in the educational arena, it's very not PC to talk about making money. And what we're trying to do, especially in in particular states, what we're trying to do is get these kids. I had someone text me the other day. She said, I'm going to become the most conscious capitalist you've ever seen because I've learned that if I make money, that doesn't equal greed. It equals being able to buy a home for my family and then just doing some really fun shit. And we're trying to get the kids to understand the joy of hard work. Like we're in such an interesting world now, right? If you talk to kids about working really hard, then supposedly you're risking their mental health. Yet some of the things that are really good for mental health are goals and achievement and striving. So I'd say what's different about us is we don't have a really strict formula other than the kids come first. We're good at following the rules of of obviously what it means to be around all these kids, but we have a lot of fun and we, we let the, what the kids need rule the program. And we'll, we'll post this in the, in the footnotes when this podcast goes live, but for those interested, motivated, inclined to get involved, how do we find out more about ambition? So you go on to ambition.org and there's a lot of fun reading there and you can see a lot about our programming and then info at ambition.org, reach out and uh, we'll share what's happening. And we have programming that we're starting in a lot of other states. So I I would say definitely start with ambition.org and then reach out to us. And on that same line, and we're going to, we're going to dive into this now, your, your creative side and these incredibly unique made in the United States, JAMA handbags that are now named after famous actors and have incorporated the finest leather mimicking our favorite sports cars. Tell us how we find out more about JAMA and and why everybody needs one of these. So JAMA, in a nutshell, is one of the the truest, finest luxury handbag brands made in the USA. We're 23 years old now, so we're actually starting to really like get up there with the the big guys. We do all made to order. So you can go on our website, jama.com, J-A-M-A-H, and you you can pick out a bag. You can choose your colors, your hardware. So that's our sort of basic, our classic collection. But a couple of years ago, I came up with this idea to make the spoke bags for 
motor car collections. So people will come to me and they'll say, one of the funny ones is, I bought another car. I don't know how to tell my wife. <laughs> so we, I say, I, I have an answer for that. And we make a bag that reflects the car, but not a bag that this the tricky part is it reflecting the car, but still just being a beautiful handbag. And so we, uh, as I call it, we're sort of customization and personalization on steroids. So not only will we make a bag for you or your wife or the husband, we will record the process. And inside the bags, we will inscribe beautiful personal messages. But this motor car collection, it's the first time it's ever been done. So Porsche may have a luggage line, but this is very different from that, where they work with me and I come up with custom creations for their cars. So I've, I, last year we went on this trip with the Rob Report and it just took the lid off and it's been really, really exciting. And so um, we, and that's actually also increased attention to a, my classic line. So people can do um, custom pieces in my JAMA classic collection or in the motor car collection. But the motor car collection has been just so exciting. And the funny part about it too is other than driving on racetracks, I don't draw, I don't have a car. <laughs> so the biggest Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you live in a day and age where, you know, I think that that's an easy choice to make if you so choose to do so. Uh, well, we will we will put the links to the the JAMA bags on the on the podcast as well. Nancy, I've met a lot of people in the 46 years that I've been on this planet, and few of them come across to me the way that you have in the short amount of time we've gotten to know each other. And what I mean by that is someone that's done such amazing work and obviously has had some incredible obstacles and life struggles along the way that certainly have had an impact and in, in shape who you are. But when I'm engaged with you, my dad had this capability too. Like you have this, this talent to make the conversation about the other person. You're very selfless in your discussions. It's you meet so many people that have done interesting things and successful things and rightly so they want to talk about themselves and you do an amazing job of always turning that around and asking how the other person's doing and genuinely caring about what the answer is. It's not just a formality at the beginning of the conversation. So I say all that in we, we always end the podcast with the same question. And the question is taking an age old phrase of it's not what you know, it's who you know, and you turn it around and say, it's not who you know, but who knows you. And so in thinking about this podcast as a medium to capture your story, we've captured all of the wonderful things that you've done and the hardships that you've faced. But what do you want the listeners of this podcast to truly know about you? I think what I want them to know 
is that I truly am happy. I, right, we live in a world where everybody questions that and what's behind the scenes. And I've been through some challenging shit, but I wake up happy. And I think about that every day. I don't just wake up unconsciously happy. I think about it, which is why I think I can keep waking up that way. That's beautiful. Simplistic and beautiful. Simple is much easier for me. <laughs> well, me too. But we, we, we as human beings love to complicate things, right? Yeah. You know, I, I love that because, and, and I've talked about this in, in goal meetings that we have inside my company, and we talk about the way we set up our days and the mindset that we have to have in order to do what we do and lead from the front and lead by example and be a good person and be accountable to our teams and our clients. And every single morning, the first thing I do, you wanna talk about simple, whether the alarm goes off or I just wake up naturally or however the day starts, before I do anything, I just tell myself, no bad days, no bad days. I love that. And love when that. you have, when you start your day out with that mindset, it's really hard to have a bad day. I mean, stuff can fly at you. It can knock you off your rocker. But if you fundamentally start the day with that mindset, by and large, you have a whole lot more good days than bad, right? So maybe the answer is simplicity. I love that because my whole life, probably three, four, five times a day, and I mean, rarely do I miss this. I do something, it's called stop time. And it's really about stopping time to reset. And the acronym for stop time is, well, the rules are you get up, you go into another room without your electronics. Although when I started this as a young girl, there were no electronics, so you just got up and walked into <laughs> the room. Otherwise, you'd be carrying your television. Um, but you walk into another room, and you sit down, and you empty your brain, and it takes one or two minutes, and nobody doesn't have one or two minutes three, four times a day. And STOP stands for settle down, take a breath, own it, poof. <laughs> And I do that throughout the day to reset. <laughs> it, it's simple, right? It is just it simple. Is. Yeah. The word poof also, I don't know why, it just makes me laugh. <laughs> you have quickly become one of my favorite people on the planet. Your story is amazing. Your your pursuits and, and the way that you are involved in utilizing the platform that you're created to to bring that to the people that need it the most is, is truly an inspiration. And, uh, I hope you'll come back and, you know, the, the piece that you shared about, you know, not having shed a tear yet. That's interesting to me. I think, you know, you, you have done so much for others. I think for, for everyone that's going to listen to this podcast that knows you, I would, I would challenge all of us to, to be that resource for you, to be that shoulder, that hug that you need to find closure to this because you, you absolutely deserve it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you have become one of my favorite people. <laughs> well, I appreciate that very much. Thank you so much for joining me Thank on the you. climb, Nancy. This has been a great conversation and we'll definitely 
check back in and see how you're doing and uh, promote all the initiatives that you have. And thank you for being you. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.